Let us pray together. Gracious God, on this epiphany morning, we give you thanks for Jesus, the light of the world. And we thank you for the assurance that no darkness will ever be able to overcome or extinguish this light. Give us fresh eyes this morning to see the surprising people that your light may be shining through in our world. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Very early this past Tuesday morning, while it was still very, very dark, I was suddenly awakened by what seemed like a floodlight shining in my eyes. I was blinded by the light. And I've had that song in my mind ever since. You see, for a heartbeat, you know when you wake up suddenly and you're not sure if you're dreaming or if you're in the real world? I was in that middle place. And then suddenly I looked outside the window and I saw a great ball, white ball, shining in the winter sky. Perhaps you saw it earlier this week as well. Quite a sight. A full moon. And it was casting what seemed like uh, daylight shadows in our bedroom. It was that bright. In our Gospel reading today, we're taken back to an ancient time before central heating, and we're very grateful for that these days, before insulated windows, when people live in much more intimate connection with the natural world around them than we do today. In fact, the temperature outside is the temperature inside. Folks in the ancient world also pay much closer attention to what's happening up above in the heavens above than we usually do. And some of them even carefully watch the sky above for signs. Signs that they believe accompany the birth of great rulers down here below. And so our story opens this morning in the Gospel of Matthew with some wise men seeing and then following A rising star. What was it? We should ask, uh, Kevin, what is it? (laughs) Was it a supernova, a comet, planets aligned in the sky like we saw this morning? We don't know. Our narrator, Matthew, today calls them magi who see this star. And I never knew this, but... Did you know that magi is a plural noun? (laughs) For what? Well, uh, depending on who you talk to, it's magus or magus, magus. Anyway, it says magi in here, so we know there's one more than one magus. Right? And uh, though we all think that there are three... 
We saw three here today. Matthew, believe it or not, never actually tells us that there are three wise men. We only know that from later sources and traditions. We three kings of Orient are, for example. And later sources also even give them names, right? Uh, Balthazar, Melchior, and Casper, or Gasper. And later traditions also tell us even where they're supposedly from. Babylon, Persia, and India. But Matthew, and as our wise men here at East Chestnut told us, all we know is that they actually come from the East, or just simply from East. So who are? Who are these people? Well, magi is an ancient term, kind of an umbrella term, encompassing priests, sorcerers, physicians, astrologers, and magicians. In fact, if you listen carefully, magi, magician, share a common word origin. And until now, in the Hebrew Scriptures... In places like Daniel, magi have only ever been viewed very, very negatively as the wicked priests of the Babylonian gods. In short, the enemies of Yahweh. But surprisingly, and maybe even scandalously today, Matthew now gives these magi a very special place of symbolic honor in the unfolding story of Jesus. In Matthew, these despised foreigners with their strange ways and strange food and clothing and accents, these folks in Matthew become the very first people to visit the newborn Jesus. They are the first ones, actually, to find him, to open their treasure chests and their hearts to him, and to kneel down and worship him. Now, our our narrator, Matthew, here, he's doing something very, very important. He's wanting to show his largely Jewish congregation for whom he's writing the Gospel of Matthew. He's wanting to show them that God has been work from the very start of Jesus' life to bring in the Gentiles into the family of God. And it all begins in chapter 2 with Gentile wise men coming to Jesus, and it all ends in chapter 28 with with the risen Jesus sending out his 11 disciples to make disciples of all the nations. Of all the nations. Matthew wants us to see that through Jesus now, all people have access to God. All people. And he wants us to see 
that we're all much more connected and related to one another than we ever imagined. Last month, 20 of us uh, gathered downstairs in our fellowship hall to hear Marietta King share about her recent pilgrimage with Sadie High along the 500-mile Camino de Santiago in Spain, the very same journey that Chuck and Sue Waterfield made back in 2015. And this got me inspired. I don't know if this ever happens to you where books on the shelf start calling to you. (laughs) Todd, come read me. It got me inspired to read a book that I had been given by the author 10 years ago, but never read. It's by Arthur Paul Boers, and it's called The Way is Made by Walking. It's about his Camino journey. And I should mention that Arthur Paul Boers was a very significant and influential professor uh, to Samantha and to myself uh, during his years at the Elkhart Seminary. Well, in his book, and I commend it to you, I, I wrote to Sadie High this week, and she said of the five memoirs that she read about the Camino, it was the very best in her view. In his book, he talks about how incredibly surprised he was on the Camino to discover how very few of those making this centuries-old Christian pilgrimage, how very few of them actually counted themselves as Christians. In fact, many of them, many of them, wanted to have absolutely nothing to do with the church. And they often had good reasons. But during his 31-day pilgrimage, Arthur Arthur Paul began sensing that God wanted for him to learn something new. As these secular seekers, that's what he calls them, secular seekers, often generously shared their food and their support and their stories and their time with him along the way. And then, when a bagel-sized blood blister... Say that quickly. Bagel-sized blood blister nearly ended his journey. They were the ones to help him to get to the hospital, and to receive the help that he needed. He took a day's rest, and he continued his journey. Their kindness and solidarity, he said, was converting to him. And he ended up devoting a whole chapter in his book to them and the wonderful things that he learned from them. In our story today about the Magi, it's hard not to sense that God wants us to learn something new as well. 
Notice the huge irony in this story. We're so familiar with it, sometimes we don't hear it anymore. The irony is this. Religious insiders in Jerusalem never actually get to Jesus. Though Bethlehem is only nine miles away, they never get to him. It's religious outsiders coming from hundreds and hundreds of miles away probably who get there instead. Surely this is a cautionary tale for all of us religious insiders, all of us chief priests. Because notice that Jerusalem's religious community has the Word of God. They have the Scriptures, but they are the ones to miss the Messiah. And notice that wicked Herod in this story is not the only one shaking with fear about the newborn king. Verse 4, so also is all of Jerusalem with him. In other words, the religious community with him, with Herod, these religious insiders resist rather than join the new and astonishing thing that God is doing in their world. I think that Arthur Paul's chapter on those secular seekers, secular seekers, moved me personally so deeply because it's a subject that many of us here at East Chestnut have been talking with one another about lately, especially since many of us have just recently shared our holiday tables, have we not, with many dear friends and siblings and adult children of no faith or of a different faith. I'm just curious at your Thanksgiving and Christmas tables, how many of you shared your table with a person of no faith or no declared faith or of another faith? I don't know about you, but at these tables, I think we naturally feel eager to learn about their lives and to share about our own lives. And I don't know about you, but sometimes these conversations can end up feeling strangely shallow and superficial. How can we share deeply about our own life without talking about the one who is at the center of it? I mean, really, how can, I, how can you know Todd Friesen if I can't share with you about my life with God? As one writer puts it so beautifully, I cannot not talk about God and make any sense. 
He also says, I cannot talk about God and make any sense either. (laughs) Amen? I love that. I cannot talk about God and make any sense, and I feel that way a lot. But I cannot not talk about God. You can never know me unless, and I can never know you unless we talk about what God is doing in our lives. How can we share about the hope, the deep hope that we feel sustaining us in these tumultuous days right now? And they're tumultuous. But how can we do that with the gentle, gentleness and reverence and winsomeness that we, is mentioned in 1 Peter 3.15? How can we share with gentleness and reverence about God's activity in our lives? I also wonder, and this is more confessional, if we and I need to start seeing the world around us and those in it with fresh eyes. What what, what might this mean? I think maybe it means recognizing that God is just as deeply at work in the church as in the world or I said that the wrong way, God is as active in the world as in the church. Do we see the world that way? I wonder if it means in our conversations with our dear loved ones, maybe trying to be just a little bit more curious, a little more on the lookout for signs of God's activity in their lives though they still may be unknown or unseen or unacknowledged. I wonder if it means not just seeing the world as a wicked, greedy, and violent place. And it often is. But also as the much-loved arena where God is at work through surprisingly wise men and women. And surely it means being willing to join what God is already doing through them here in our city. God's doing a lot in our city through them and in our world. Our story ends today with the Magi arriving in Bethlehem, announced to Mary and the child Jesus, I imagine, by the loud blasts of camels snorting cold air through their nostrils. You ever heard that? It's unforgettable. And in come these wonderful foreigners, delirious with joy, falling down on their faces to worship Jesus, pressing their heads on the dirty floor. And then they open their treasure chests, and they open their hearts to Him, offering their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they're so transformed by that encounter with Jesus that they go home by a very different road. 
And here we are too as well, dear friends, 2,000 years later, joining them in celebrating the coming of God's light to our world. Cradled in Mary's arms is our world Savior sent by God to scatter the proud and bring down the mighty. That's good news. To lift up the the lowly and to fill the hungry and the poor with good things. And in this child, God's light is dawning. A light so strong and radiant that no darkness will ever be able to snuff it out. And because of Jesus, we know that. Because of Him, we know that. This last month, we've all been seeing many images of the nativity in Bethlehem. In our homes, on billboards, in books. But the one that I treasure most is the image that I sent to you this week. You can see it on the back bulletin board as well. It's uh, taken at our Christmas Eve service just last week. So here is East Chestnut Street, Mennonite Church, gathered around Jesus, the light of the world. A community opening our lives to the transforming light of Jesus and sharing it with those around us. And also a community that is curious and on the lookout for the surprising folks through whom this light may also be shining. Amen.